Welcome to Friends of George MacDonald, an ongoing podcast designed to introduce and discuss the author and his influence on the hosts and listeners in popular culture alike. Welcome to another episode of Making Friends with George MacDonald. I'm very excited today. We have Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson. Um, it's one of my favorite George people. She's a George MacDonald scholar who lives on a farm in the Ottawa Valley of Canada. She writes and lectures internationally on MacDonald, the 19th century, the Inklings, and faith in the arts. She's on the advisory board of Inklings Journal 7, a founding board member of the C.S. Lewis and Kindred Society of Eastern and Central Europe, and co-chair of the George MacDonald Society. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. So uh, one of the things we thought we'd have you do to start off um, is if you wanted to give us like a thumbnail outline for people who aren't familiar with George MacDonald as to who he is and why he's relevant. I'd love to do that. It's something that I know each of you could definitely do, and you'll probably think of different things that I've missed. So feel free to pipe in and add things or ask me more things afterwards. But I think in general, George MacDonald is usually considered the the grandfather of modern fantasy in English or the grandfather of the Inklings. But he was he was that indeed, but he was so much more than that. And that's one of the things that I think I've become increasingly impassionate about in the last few years is helping people realize that he's that and so much more. So he's a professor and lecturer in the discipline of English literature for over 40 years. He was a novelist, an essayist, a writer of fairy and short stories. He was a poet. He was a pastor. He was a thespian. And very importantly, he was a social reformer. He's also a dad and a father and a really active in his community neighbor, a very caring friend. Um and, and I should throw in mentor because that doesn't go without saying um, he really cared for and mentored many people in his life. Uh, he was born in rural Scotland, uh, being a farm kid. I want to emphasize that in 1824, although he was born in the small town of Huntley, he grew up on a farm and he was born into a highly literate family. His, yeah, he, he grew up in a house full of books and a house that loved story and valued education really highly. He also grew up in a really ecumenically diverse community. Um, I think that's something that's also often missed. His grandmother that we often hear about, his paternal grandmother, was a Federalist Calvinist, so a, a very conservative Calvinist. But his family and his whole community was actually quite diverse. And there's everything from if we say the federal Calvinism at one end to what would now probably be described as Celtic Christianity. At the other end, though, that's that's an amorphous term, but I think that's useful for the moment. He had people in his family who were Presbyterian ministers, who were Free Kirk ministers that were Anglican, Episcopalian ministers. There were people who were Catholics. So it was a really, really diverse community in which he grew up um, theologically. And I think that's something that sometimes gets missed in the mix. And his, his own extended family, as I just alluded to, um, with several relatives who are ministers, really represented that in his own family. There's quite a bit of diversity. He grew up on a farm in a small community um, with family that was quite well known. I'm going to pull myself back from plunging into too much detail because so there's so much that's of interest. But I'll zoom ahead to his, his teens. He attended King's College in Aberdeen. 
And what also often surprises people is that when he was there, he took prizes in chemistry and natural philosophy um, and physics. And his McDonald loved science passionately. He loved literature. He loved nature. He loved theology, even as a, as a young kid, loved reciting sermons and reading Thomas Chalmers. But he also loved science deeply. And in fact, his initial intent was to further study medicine, chemistry, or math in Europe. And it was actually lack of finances that, that deterred that. He even considered agricultural chemistry, again, tying back to his agricultural background, and also a familial concern about social issues. His family is very aware of corn laws and the ramifications of that. So agricultural chemistry was one of the things he seriously considered. Um, after he's done at university, he went down to London to try to figure out what was next. And he tutored for three years down there, not yet sure of his vocation. And after he's done that period, he went off to seminary. And his father actually wasn't sure that was the best choice because he thought, and this is in the letters, he thought actually George, George should be a teacher. Um, and interestingly, there's actually a letter where he writes to George and he tells him about a college that he's heard of in Manchester, not knowing that while MacDonald was in seminary, he was dragging his fiance and his friends over to lectures being given by the man who would become the first principal of that, of that college in Manchester. And this was A.J. Scott, um, who MacDonald describes as his most other significant mentor next to his father. And A.J. Scott was giving lectures on literature and history and philosophy and theology in London while MacDonald was at seminary. So MacDonald was kind of topping up his own education by attending Scott's lectures. MacDonald, later in his life, after A.J. Scott passed away, he wrote to A.J. Scott's wife, Anne, and said, he says in the letter, all my prosperity and literary life has come chiefly through him and you. That's pretty significant. Um, so I want to flag this guy, A.J. Scott, if you've not heard of him. He was a pastor who then did a really familiar sounding route, probably, to some of you. He becomes a literature professor and ends up, he's actually the first ever full-time English literature professor in England. Um, and so he taught MacDonald a lot about literature, about how to think academically. And what's key, I think, in that quotation, too, is not just MacDonald's gratitude to this man, A.J. Scott, who was a fellow Scottish um, person, <laughs> um, was, but he also says, has come, you know, all my prosperi prosperity and literary life has come chiefly through him and you. And MacDonald is acknowledging that Anne's role in that as well, that Anne Scott also taught him a lot about literature. Um, and I think this flags early some of MacDonald's attitude towards women, and not just education of women, but education from women. Um, MacDonald also wrote that Scott was, quote, and this is MacDonald's words, the greatest man I have ever known. Um, praise. So, yeah, pretty high praise. So I think AJ Scott is somebody, maybe somebody to look at at a future podcast, actually. I think he's a really significant figure. Um, and maybe worthwhile saying in this, um, in his obituaries in London, AJ Scott's frequently called the best Dante scholar of the day. So again, echoes of what we're going to see in McDonald in the future and why McDonald himself is so interested in Dante. But despite 
his father's urgings to go off and study in Manchester or to go off and teach, I should say, at that point in time. Um, and despite the fact that he's writing letters to people in his family saying that he really wants to become a writer, MacDonald becomes a pastor in the English town of Arundel. He becomes a pastor in the denomination called uh, Congregationalist, which was also the seminary that he went to as a Congregationalist seminary. That's not the denomination MacDonald grew up in, nor is it the one that he would stay in for the rest of his life. But that is where he went to seminary. And he was only ended up being a pastor for, well, specifically 28 months in that church. His teachings about things such as the all-inclusive love of God, that perhaps animals might also be in the hereafter, various things. And it's hard for us to know the real specifics around this, but there were things that he was preaching and teaching that certain elders in the church did not did not approve of. And so his salary was lowered and lowered significantly enough that um, he finally decides he needs to leave. Again, in this picture, and you'll hear me say this again and again, context is so important. The two pastors before George MacDonald were fired. Um, So really important to put that into like, MacDonald wasn't this random guy that just didn't fit into the church congregation. Clearly, Clearly, there's a pattern happening in the church, and there were plenty of people in the congregation who stayed friends with McDonald for life. But the things for which his salary were lowered remained lifelong emphases for him, both on the page and in the pulpit. And McDonald, it's not that he never preached again. He certainly did. He preached throughout his life at for many years at one, you know, in the middle of his life, he's preaching almost every Sunday, but he never preaches for pay. And this is a gifting that he does, but it's not his primary vocation. And I think a lot of early, especially early 20th century McDonald scholarship kind of missed that. Certainly when I started studying McDonald, he was presented as, as a pastor, as a minister, and then eventually as a failed minister or minister who had to write novels on the side to feed his family. Um, and actually he was he was in that that position in Arundel for just 28 months. And he does house preaching and guest preaching after that here and there. But really what his passion is, is teaching literature, following the footsteps of his mentor, A.J. Scott. When his position in Arundel comes to an end, he moves to Manchester, like his dad suggested. Um, to be closer to to A.J. Scott. And while he's there, he teaches chemistry, he gives literature lectures, he helps pastor a home church. Um, But then he starts to get really bad, um, develop really bad tubercular issues um, with his health. And that will be also throughout his life a constant theme. He lost multiple family members, including his mother and daughters and grandchildren to Um, diseases connected to TB. And so he has to kind of step back and he goes off to Algiers for a bit of a trip to recover. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, the day boy and the night girl or photogen and nictris, um, you'll see echoes of that trip um, from in that short, in that short story. And that trip was funded by Lady Byron, interestingly enough. And she had read some of McDonald's early writings and really enjoyed his work and wanted to support him and encourage him. And he actually ended up being a secretary for her uh, for a little bit of time and learned an awful lot about her life with 
Lord Byron um, before they parted ways. And um, that probably is part of the reason why in any McDonald novel you read, if a character is really passionate about Lord Byron, um, and the Byron scholars out there probably probably will not like, like this little tidbit, but pretty much guaranteed they're a baddie if they're trying to encourage everybody to read Byron. You know, Shelley, if they're reading Shelley, that means they're they're like confused in their life what way to go. But um I think from what I've from what I've seen, I think without fail, if somebody's passionate about Byron, they're not a good person in the story. And McDonald's time with with Lady Byron gives a little hint as to why. So McDonald becomes starts seriously publishing in 1845 with short poems and literary criticism. Um, his piece on Browning's Christmas Eve poem, Christmas Eve, is is his first in that genre and and quite significant. Um, then he starts translating some poems into English. Novalis's Hymns of the Night. He does first for friends and then it gets published more widely, which indicates to us already by then his German is really good. And a reminder that McDonald's a polyglot. He speaks multiple languages. So already by then his German's quite good. And he later publishes more translated poems from German and Italian. A bunch of Luther poems in particular are really interesting. His first book length publication is Within and Without. And then he does some more poems, and then he does Fantasties. And Fantasties is his first piece of fantasy, his first real novel. And although some critics were confused and unimpressed with this new genre, um, there are actually, I've come across more contemporary reviews that are laudatory of it. But MacDonald himself um, finds one, one review, the review that talks about a secondhand junk shop, quite humorous. And so he quotes that. And so that ends up being quoted a lot, which means that people often think that nobody liked the story, but actually it's almost McDonald's fault that we all know that review because he quoted that review. But um, it's on only a couple of years later, you'll start finding literary journals talking about what a success Fantasties was. So actually there was a really um, positive reception on the whole to this entirely new genre. But nonetheless, his realistic novels make him a lot more money. So beginning with David Elgenbrod, Alec Forbes, Robert Faulkner, um, he starts to write his realistic novels as well. If I remember correctly, those are the three novels where he most mentions Byron. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting, James. And that would make sense because things would be so fresh fresh in his memory. That's really cool. But yeah, thank you. That's very cool. Um, McDonald's acquainted with or friends with a lot of the London literate and artists of his days, in part thanks to his relationship with A.J. Scott and then also Lady Byron. But it's, I think it's striking how much time he nonetheless invests in family, in close friends, in people in need. And that's a really important part of who McDonald is and I think really shapes how he writes and what he writes. And maybe also even impacts how much he, he edits what he writes. John Ruskin, Lewis Curl, F.D. Morris, um, a lot of people like this, Octavia Hill, were really good friends um, with the whole family, not just McDonald himself. I think that is also just an important thing to highlight in who McDonald is. These weren't just, you know, he went off and hung out with his his 
intellectual friends or his famous friends. These are people that were drawn into the McDonald family, ended up doing plays with them and having dinners with them and picnics. And the children would write goofy letters back and forth with them. Those are hilarious letters between the children and Lewis Carroll in particular. And Lewis Carroll's always drawing pictures for them. Um, but also Tennyson, Carlisle, the Rossettis, Matthew Arnold, Arthur Hughes, Burns Jones, Oliphant were, uh, those are just some of the names of people who came to gatherings at the McDonald's house. So again, that McDonald is not a single entity. He is really his family. Um, both those, his progenitors, as well as, as his nuclear family, which is not a tight unit at all. There's always people flowing in and out of their home and in and out of relationship with his wife, his kids, himself. Um, people felt deeply loved by the entire family. And let, again, letters are just so touching on that front, whether it's letters from Georgina Burns-Jones, Edward Burns-Jones' wife, or from Ro Rose Lat Latouche, um, Ruskin's fiance. The letters make really clear that the whole family really loved people well. Um, and they hosted theater gatherings at their house, picnic gatherings at their house. They intentionally brought together people from different classes, which is kind of kind of edgy. It's very edgy. They would have priests and poets and princesses and paupers quite literally all together at the same time. And then often they would be putting on the plays at, at these gatherings themselves and plays that Louisa usually wrote. Um, to raise money, sometimes to raise money for orphans and homeless in their in their vicinity. Pilgrim's Progress is the most famous of these, but they also put on Shakespeare plays, Greek plays, fairy tales. They wrote versions of Dickens um, into play form and Emile Zola. Um, really vast, vast variety. Um, and really um, kind of helped shift an attitude towards theater for public polite society in the era um, through doing that. And actually, we're also ostracized by some people for letting their kids be on stage, for putting on plays. Um, and you can see through all that, McDonald's tying in a lot of social justice passions. I, I hope you start to see some of those threads that come through these activities he's doing. And even I think of things that happened, um, gatherings that they're involved with. They also um, had the Fisk Jubilee Singers um, Mark Twain brought those from from the U.S. to come sing in their home after McDonald and Louisa were really struck by their music in um, the U.S. Um, Fisk University being one of the first um, universities for African-Americans. Um, one of McDonald's many, many social justice passions was that of higher education for everybody, regardless of gender, regardless of class, regardless of religion. and um, I might need to highlight, people might not realize that, you know, in the in the 1840s when McDonald's going to school, he could have never gone to Oxford or Cambridge because not just for price-wise um, being able to afford to do that, but he couldn't have gone because he wasn't at that point in time in his life an Anglican. You had to be a male Anglican and sufficiently wealthy to graduate with a university degree in England at all. 
anywhere in England because anywhere in England was only Oxford and Cambridge in McDonald's youth. And so he is involved with A.J. Scott and F.D. Morris in shifting some of this and helping university education become available to working class people, to women, and to people who aren't Anglicans, and even people who aren't Christians. Um, and that is a very much propelled by their own faith. So McDonald himself teaches English literature at Bedford College for women. I said A.J. Scott was the first ever full-time English literature professor. McDonald's in that second generation, the second generation of ever English literature professors. And Bedford was the first institute where women could study at a university level for purposes other than becoming merely a governess or a teacher. He also taught at King's College London, um, the first university in England to have a degree like that too. And over four decades, I'm yeah, tighten us up here. Over four decades, he delivered innumerable lectures on English literature and on Dante. That Dante was his main non-English lit exception in England, in Scotland, in Ireland, in Italy, in France, in the U.S. and in Canada. His lectures, like his sermons, were always delivered extempore with one oft-repeated exception. There was one exception, and he gave this lecture multiple times, and it was a lecture on the imagination, which we can read now um, in the collection A Dish of Orts, and the essay is called The Imagination, Its Functions, and Its Culture. It first appeared in a newspaper, and then McDonald extended it. Um, and we have the the expanded or expanded it. We have the expanded form in Dish of Orts. Uh, and I'd say it's, I mean, he clearly thought it was a seminal essay. It's the one thing that he read from the text. And if you want to know where Tolkien's on fairy stories come from, or Chesterton's ethics in Elfland comes from, or Lewis's on stories, some of those ideas come from, um, go read The Imagination, Its Functions in the Culture. It's it's pretty phenomenal. And I think it's it's only becoming increasingly important in what it has to say. In that American lecture tour that I referenced in 1872, where he went to the States and Canada, um, he lectured chiefly on Burns and Shakespeare and filled halls with literally thousands of people. Um, literally thousands. He also ended up getting an offer from uh, Fifth Ave New York Church to come be a minister there with a huge salary, which he turned down. Um, and he continued to preach for free, but he turned that down. Um, and he garnered many, many friends, Emerson, Twain, Mary Mapes Dodge, the Fisk Singers, a huge number of people who then would come, you know, when they came to the UK, would would visit with him and continue a relationship with them. Throughout, he struggled with a life-threatening lung disease, um, as did several of his kids. And you you catch that in comments here and there, not just seeing disease and illness and pain in his stories, but in his letters and his poems. Pain is always right next door to him. Grief is always walking hand in hand with joy for MacDonald. Um, the, the sickness for himself and his family precipitated a move um, first to southern England um, near Bournemouth with a house that was built with the help of a bunch of friends. Um, and that wasn't sufficient, that the warmer climes were not sufficient. So then they moved to the Italian Riviera in about the late 1870s. Um, and then eventually they moved to Bordighera, Italy. And that's where they spent a lot of the winters 
um, and a lot of time hoping that that would be healthier for McDonald and for his his children. And as I said, several actually preceded McDonald dying of of diseases. Uh, moving to Italy was not sufficient. Um, in in Bordighera, where there's a large expat community of Brits, um, they continued to build community, continued to interweave people from different classes, again, continuing to offend some people by doing that, um, bringing lower class Italians into their home, which was not appreciated by all of the upper class Brits. Louisa was the organist for both the Catholic and the Anglican churches. By then they are Anglicans themselves. They had organ concerts and theater plays, uh, readings, community charades, lectures, theatricals at their home. They used to hoist up a white flag to the top of their house whenever there was open charades and people in the community knew that they could come um, and play charades um, or watch charades that night if they saw the white flag up. And then after a long illness in 1905, McDonald dies in England. He's buried in Bordighera where Louisa is also buried in, in Italy. And by that time, three siblings, four children, and a granddaughter had all died of lung diseases before he did. And yet throughout that time, he published over 50 volumes of fiction, verse, children's stories, essays, sermons, anthologies, folio-based edition of Hamlet, and was a father, a friend involved in his community all at the same time, which I, and while being ill and his children, Greville and Ronald, both write of him being the holiest man they ever knew, which I think was one of the things that caught me early on is that's, you know, as kids, we know a lot of our parents' faults. And sometimes it's hard for us as kids to have grace for that. It's easier for other people to have grace for our parents sometimes. And so to hear them both, both pointed out things that they didn't think were perfect about their dad, but their admiration for him is, is quite striking. And you guys are all evidence of, of the legacy of his writing continuing to challenge and change and be loved by people 200 years later. Okay, I've rambled enough. I told That's you great. I can be dangerous. That is awesome. That's a super great synopsis. So, Kirsten, what what led you to McDonald? How did you find him? And what led you to become a George McDonald scholar? Well, my life is a lot shorter than his, so it's so easier. Um, I was actually introduced to McDonald when I was five or six years old, somebody told me that if I liked Narnia, then I would probably enjoy these books about a princess and some goblins. And that, that was my introduction to him. And I continued to read MacDonald and his short stories and the princess books and the novellas again and again, they were certainly books that I reread frequently as a child and found just as magical as I had found Narnia. When I was six, I think, maybe seven, but just because of where we were living at the time, probably six, I remember the pastor, I remember very clearly the pastor reading Isaiah 6 from the pulpit. 
And in my head, I went, oh, that's from the princess and Curtie. I know where that comes from. <laughs> and it took me a few years to realize that it actually was the inverse. Um, but that kind of stuck in my head. And I think, I think actually... Uh, that moment was not like, oh, she's doomed to be a literary critic <laughs> kind of thing, but actually helped me get excited about the Bible, too, and see some of the story in the Bible um, in places where I didn't, you know, I knew lots of Old Testament stories. My parents are wonderful at, at filling us with lots of Old Testament as well as New Testament stories. But, you know, the the prophets aren't as narrative driven. And to see this, this this part of Isaiah come to life all the more because I got it a bit better from the princess and Curdy, I think really shaped my own reading of scripture. Um, and, you know, McDonald was a bedside friend for, you know, into my teen years. And I think I read a little bit less in my twenties perhaps. Um, and then in my early twenties, um, I've talked before about, the John Bunyan class I took and reading Pilgrim's Progress and studying Pilgrim's Progress and serendipitously picking up the golden key while putting off writing a paper on Pilgrim's Progress and suddenly recognizing so much correlation between the two texts. And that got me kind of excited about McDonald academically at that point in time. I also was all of a sudden so struck by um, going back and starting to read McDonald at that point in time that realizing that Lewis was telling the truth when he said that he never wrote a thing without quoting McDonald's because all this stuff I was seeing in McDonald's like, Oh, that's where Lewis got that. That's where Lewis got that. And to a point, you know, it, it kind of seemed kind of extreme as in, and Lewis says that, you know, he says, I don't get why people don't get when I say that everything comes from McDonald. Nobody takes me seriously. It, it really, it's, it's there for the reading. Um, but during that period, I was, you know, I'd gotten excited about McDonald again. I started doing grad studies at Regent College in Vancouver. And I was working on a paper for an Isaiah class. And I was reading through the book of Isaiah and all of a sudden seeing Princess and Curdie again and realizing how shaped that text was by the book of Isaiah and getting really excited by that. And then I came again to the Isaiah 6 passage and I was suddenly really struck by the fact that although there's a gazillion things in my life that I am weak in and struggle in and things, um, things in my faith walk that do not come easy. One thing that's been relatively easy for me, it hasn't been as much as a, of a struggle, is being able to say, here I am, send me, even if I don't know what that means, even if I don't know where that's going to be. And a penny kind of dropped for me because that's what's happening in Isaiah 6 with Isaiah. And that's what's happening in the Princess and Curtie with that particular chapter with the great-great-grandmother and the roses and Curtie. And she's saying, will you go, Curtie, even though you don't know what it's going to be? And Curtie says, yes. And he trusts her. And I realized that reading and rereading and rereading that story had actually helped me learn through Curtie. And I started to think about that more widely and realized there are a lot of things, a lot of ways in which McDonald had shaped my worldview, um, my attitude towards aging, my attitude, well, all sorts, all sorts of different things. And so in I, I was really struck by that. And that actually directed 
my decision for my master's thesis. I um, had the privilege of, of being supervised by Eugene Peterson. And I said to him, I'd like to write either on George MacDonald or on the educational nature of story, how we learn through story, how we're shaped by story. And he said, I don't know enough about McDonald, but I'm really excited about the second one. So that was my, my, my master's work. And really it was a beautiful foundation for then going on and doing my PhD on George McDonald, on the concept of mythopoesis um, as described by Tolkien and Lewis, why they see McDonald as the great mythopoic and then trying to understand how does he become this? And that first, my master's work really helped prepare the ground for the power of learning through story and being shaped by story. So why did MacDonald choose to use myth and fantasy to convey his message? This is where, like, I want to say, well, if you go back and read my PhD and <laughs> my, my, my thousands of words, then, then you'll get it. I'm horrible. I'm a, I'm a Victorian scholar. I'm really bad at being succinct. Um, but I think we have a key in his, in his mentor, A.J. Scott, this first ever full-time English literature scholar, and Scott's passion for the educational nature of story. And if we go, so, you know, and I didn't even, I didn't even know about that piece when I started, but what I did do is I I read McDonald, where McDonald says, he says again and again is at work, context is really important. Knowing family is really important. Knowing people's friends is really important. We are never, never solitary beings. There's humans, even if they want to try to be solitary beings, are not and cannot be. And he's telling, he tells us that explicitly in his essays. He tells that in it, uh, tells us that in his stories again and again. James, you talked about reading. David Elgenbrod as as your first McDonald novel. When I went through that novel intentionally with a pencil in my hand, I was blown away by how many other writers McDonald mentions in this his first full realistic novel. Um, there are well over ninety explicit references to other writers. Over ninety. And who knows how many other implicit. And I look back and I think, wow, I was like, you know, I was 25, 26 when I was reading that. I probably missed a ton, a ton of references. So McDonald himself is always pointing us to other people um, and historic characters, contemporary characters, as well as, as authors in the past. And he's always saying context is important. History is important. Story is important. Context is important. So I went back and started to read McDonald's life story through letters, through primary materials, and um, started to, I'm glancing over at my shelf of books on Strathbogie and Huntley and early 19th century Scotland to try to understand his specific world better and to start reading letters and getting to know the people in his community. And what I discovered is that story is everywhere. And I think I, when I began my research, I think I probably would have said, yeah, McDonald's is amazing. He comes out of nowhere and he loves story and he writes all this beautiful story, but he comes from this Calvinistic background that says no books are allowed and nothing comes from nothing. And McDonald actually grows up in a community that values oral storytelling deeply. It values historical storytelling deeply. And we start to, again, the more you get to know McDonald's 
own life story, you realize how many of the history stories from his own family and his own community he's drawing upon for his novels or his short stories. The Wow of Ribbon, that beautiful short story. Well, I've I've been to the Wow. I've taken photographs of the mm. bell. And oh, you have too, Dan? Yep. That's wonderful. Yep. And the plaque that's quoted in that story is really exists. Um, and you start to realize that he's pulled McDonald. McDonald pulls in history and he pulls in family story as well as literature, as well as scripture. And that was the culture in which he grew up. Um, he grew up in a, a story loving culture in his Scottish rural community. Knowing your, your own family story was highly valued. Knowing fairy tales was hugely valued. McDonald, one of his uncles was a essentially a fairy tale scholar. That same uncle was was a minister who fought hard to keep Gaelic Gaelic alive um, during the fought against the clearances of people being cleared off their land. Um, he had family members who were publishing Scottish poets. He had family members who were sponsoring Scottish poets um, or helping helping pay for books of Scottish bards to be to be published. He had uh, a great uncle, step great uncle, who was a Shakespeare scholar. His parents, both of his parents, had quite high-level education, even for Scotland at the time. And Scotland's education is far ahead of England's for all classes at that point in time. Literacy in Scotland is far ahead. Um, his church is a church that values story, so it's all around him. He's absorbing it. And he loves it. His his schoolmaster recounted, you know, wrote about how he would stand and tell fairy tales and ghost stories to his his fellow pupils. His own, as I said, his own home was full of books, Coleridge and Cooper and Darwin and Shakespeare. And MacDonald writes about lying on the back of his horse reading for hours. Um, but his father also clearly modeled that. And we see that in the letters between MacDonald and his father and all the different poets and, and writers that they reference um, as they discuss different things together. And so he came from a culture that loved story, that valued story, that valued different types of story. And then, of course, scripture being so important and knowing scripture and memorizing scripture and knowing scripture story. And then when he goes off, ends up in London, he has a mentor who has come down from Scotland. And this mentor, A.J. Scott, has been, and we see this in Scott's early life up in Scotland, and this is exacerbated, increased substantially when he comes into England. A.J. Scott is really concerned about the consequences of the Industrial Revolution. But all these rural people moving into big mass cities and being uprooted from their cultures, uprooted from their family, uprooted from hearing Bible stories in church and ha not having as strong a sense of self. And he's, he, as I say, in, in England or in Scotland, he was a little bit worried about this and involved in, in efforts to count, counter this. When he moves down, this is A.J. Scott, when he moves down to London he sees this happening on a far bigger scale than in Scotland. One, because Scotland has such higher lit literacy than England does at the time. Um, and it's not, literacy is not a class thing in Scotland. So he comes down to England and he realizes down at the working docks that are next to his church, none of the men working there 
know how to read and they don't know their stories. They've been ripped from their homes because they've moved into the big city centers. So they don't know their family stories anymore. They don't know their culture stories anymore, but they also don't know England stories. They don't know English fairy tales and they don't certainly don't know Chaucer or Shakespeare or Spencer. And he thinks this is, this is a tragedy because AJ Scott McDonald's mentor thinks that the better we know who we are, the better we know our stories, the better we will understand who we are in relation to God and each other. Um, and the the more deeply and better we'll, we will know the gospel story. So he starts giving lectures down at the docks um, to these people, uh, lectures on literature, lecture on lectures on English history, because he's concerned that these English people do not know their English history, their English culture, lectures on church history. And then he starts to realize um, that, you know, back to Engl you know, Oxford and Cambridge, at a pretty limited number of people who could go there to study. But he'd also realized that unlike the Scottish universities in England, in Oxford and Cambridge, there, the main literature that was studied was Greek or Latin or maybe continental, some German stuff, but um, English literature was not taught. And the assumption was if you're educated there, then you would go on and read English literature on your own. But the reality is, I think, just like now, a lot of people don't have time to go off and read Shakespeare on their own or Chaucer on their own. And so Scott starts giving the same type of lectures that he was giving down in the docks to the working men. He starts giving at the public halls in London, lectures on Shakespeare, lectures on Chaucer, lectures on Bede, lectures on Beowulf. Um, he goes down to the library and starts pulling up all these English stories that haven't been read for years and the lectures are packed out. Um, and people like Carlyle and Ruskin, um, Rasmus Darwin, the Sterlings, all these people start coming to these lectures to learn more of their own stories and history. And amongst all those people is a young seminarian and his fiance and a bunch of his friends that he's dragged with them, young George MacDonald. And he's just eating this up, this person who's, confirming and expanding what his Scottish culture had told him, that stories are important, stories shape who we are. This is stories help us relate with others better. They help us relate with God better. The gospel story is a story um, that we are given a story to understand who God is and how he relates to us. And so he, McDonald, puts himself under the tutelage of this man who is pointing out, wow, you English people don't know your stories. Let me help you get to know those better. And all of us need to know our stories better. And indeed, once, you know, in the, in the era of empire, once we know our English and our Scottish and our Irish stories better, then we will understand that there's no such thing as a pure English story. There's no such thing as a pure Scottish story that if we know those stories well, we see that there are threads from other cultures that weave in. And we will actually understand better cult other cultures better and have a greater openness to others and have less of a mentality of being better than others, the better we know our own stories, the more honest we are about our own stories. And this is all stuff that McDonald is learning, learning from Scott and seeing played out. And I think if you read any single text by McDonald 
whether it's a fairy tale, a novel, an essay, a sermon, you see all these threads playing out in every single story. Absolutely. Maybe you could illuminate me on something I've wondered for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I think we all well know that around the world, especially in the United States where I live, it also was a time of a whole lot of political upheaval and strife. And coincidentally, that was the year I picked up and read for the first time George MacDonald's book, St. George and St. Michael. Hmm. And that book covers the story. The storyline happens along the timeline of the, the English Civil War, which, of course, was a couple centuries before George MacDonald's life. So he did not have firsthand experience in it. But... He could so, what, what amazed me is that he he talks a whole lot, like the running theme of the book is this idea of how corrupting party spirit is. And he uses that term again and again, party spirit. And how, you know, when, once you fall in with one party, you just kind of go along with that party and the two parties can war with each other and so forth. And uh, reading that story that year gave me a lot of, relevant advice on how I should uh, perceive and and deal with the things going on around me in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've always wondered, what was it that had been going on in England and George's life that would have taught him some of those lessons? Mm -hmm. Like many of these other things you talked about, I can readily see how they were in his life. Yeah. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, well, and what I when I talk about how ecumenically diverse his community it w- was that he grew up in, that was not without strife. Um, and as as we kind of know from stories we hear about his grandmother, and I always I always want to you know remind people that he didn't grow up in the house with his grandmother. Um, he grew up in the house with his his father and and stepmom and aunt and uncle, who clearly thought had very different perspectives on theology and on ways to live one's life on concepts like Sabbath than his his grandmother did. And I think right there immediately is modeled for the young George, um, this grandmother who is loved by her sons. And George goes and reads to her um, at one point in time in his life. I think he's going every Sunday to read to her. And yet she clearly strongly disagrees with her sons on many issues and the 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 fiddle burning incident in Robert Falconer comes from uh real life is inspired by a real life incident when George McDonald's dad and uncles were young men they found their father's fiddle and their father was long passed away at that point in time. And when they started to play with it, that's when George's paternal grandmother burnt the fiddle when she heard her sons playing with it because her theology did not allow for that sort of play. And yet clearly George's dad and his uncle were very different on that topic. And George, we see this in letters. And then we also see this in the poem called The Hidden Life, which George writes and dedicates to his father. And again, it's it's a poem. So we have to be careful of extrapolating biographical 
details from the poem. But in this poem that's um, dedicated to his father, there are definite parallels with things we see in the letters between him and his father that talk about how they would discuss things they agree after church on Sunday, they would discuss things in the sermon, things they disagreed with and things they agreed with. And I think this is one of the ways in which George McDonald's father was an incredible, incredible mentor because he's showing his son that I can strongly disagree with even my pastor on this topic, but still see him as a spiritual leader and still be friends with him, even if I disagree with him. And in fact, that there is nobody with, and you see this thread throughout McDonald, there's no human with whom one agrees with 100% if one is actually their own person. Um, Which even, you know, the echo of that down the road for me is when C.S. Lewis says, well, I don't agree with McDonald in every point, but I still consider him closer to the spirit of Christ than any other writer I know. Which again, huge statement. But like he says, it's not that I think I agree with him on everything because I'm separate from McDonald. I don't agree with Augustine on everything. I don't agree with Dante on everything. And that's that we see McDonald models this throughout the rest of his life. And he'll say, there's lots of things I disagree with Dante on, but I think he is a phenomenal theological teacher, a phenomenal poet. And in fact, Dante is particularly important to McDonald for this very point that you raised, James. Um, and I would say that studying Dante really, I've I've not, I haven't read St. George and St. Michael for many, many years. It'd be really fun to read it with the comedy, um, Dante's Commedia in, in one's mind, because um, as I said earlier, MacDonald gave lectures on all sorts of British writers, mostly English and a few Scottish writers throughout his life and only one non-British writer, and that was Dante. You know, he loves the German romantics. He loves the French writers. He loves Russian writers. He reads Tolstoy translated in French, but the only lectures he gives are on English writing writers, English language writers, and Dante. And this brings us back to A.J. Scott, who Thomas Carlyle and Ruskin, others, as I said in his bit, I called the greatest Dante scholar of the day, although he didn't publish anything on Dante. He lectured on Dante all the time, and they saw him as, as a phenomenal Dante scholar. What really drew Scott to Dante and what then draws McDon- George MacDonald to Dante is one of the things Dante is doing in his Commedia is showing that ruptured relationship only pulls one further and further away from God. When you descend into hell, the deeper you go into hell, the more and more ruptured people's relationships are with each other, the less and less they communicate until you get down to Satan, who's frozen in complete isolation. That's the epitome of hell is complete isolation from all other people, that's, from all other beings. Where certainly... you rise up. Isn't that so cool? And as you go up in Paradiso, the higher and higher you go, the richer and richer the relationships are until they get to a point where people don't even have to talk to each other anymore because they just they they're able to communicate without that until you get to the Trinity. Because what is pure love? You know, God being pure love, what is pure love? The Trinity and full indivisible relationship, full union. And I think this is why McDonald teaches Dante. 
alongside the English speaking mm. writers that he teaches, because Dante in so many different ways is fighting against partisanship. He's fighting against broken relationship. He's fighting against isolation. And he sees, he sees the purest good as full relationship. The Trinity love is full relationship. And I think that really is constantly shaping MacDonald. And so for, you know, c- civil war, and you see that in Dante, not just in McDonald's, civil war is a deep evil. Yeah. And it's not that you have to agree with everybody because you won't ever agree with anybody on everything if you're being honest to yourself. But where do we find the points of connection, the points of love, the points of communication? And as we seek to do that, we will draw closer to God as yeah. well. That's certainly the running theme of that book. Do you have any things that you uh, disagree about with McDonald, like Lewis did? This is where I don't think well on my feet. That's okay. Yeah. In, Ask in me that studies, next time, okay? Yeah. Well, I, it was just something that came to my mind. I hadn't thought. No, about it's. It I before. think it's a really important question. I think it's a really important question. I, yeah. I find myself at times looking at things, and when you when you listen to a lot of people talking about McDonald, it's like he's he's uh, he's a god in himself in a way. Yeah, and, and, and that's I, and and people worship him as a hero and stuff. And I'm I'm really mm-hmm. out on stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think he was a real guy scrabbling along and mm-hmm. in the pain, like like you've said. Not yeah. everybody has that though. That was yeah. something you mentioned on your uh, one of the other things I listened to about that you related to him. You felt like because you grew up on a farm, mm-hmm. and there's not that many people that grow up around a farm. I, I have that also. The blessing of having uh, helped a neighbor who had a dairy farm, and all mm-hmm. the things that went with that. And, and there's something in that that really is unique. And yet he communicates some of that. I was curious in your studies and things, I've always been interested in Chesterton's bemoaning the fact that the English were no longer reading MacDonald hmm. mm-hmm. and citing that as a indication of the collapse of the it's English of, of what? <laughs> Instead of the collapse of civilization. Well, <laughs> yeah, he's a character. <laughs> and it made me wonder about McDonald's readership during his lifetime. Did you ever get a sense of how widely read he really was? We, we know that his books were hijacked in the U.S. a lot, maybe in Canada. Or did Canada get have their own publishers in those days, too? Or were they getting they them did. from... Okay. They did, but I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if the same issues were happening here because copyright laws were different in every country. Yeah. Yeah. And is anything ever said about the same happening in Germany or France or Italy with that's that? A good, that's a good question. I don't know. I do know that during his lifetime, McDonald was translated into German. Okay. Um, Julie Sutter was the name of his German translator, and he was very pleased with her work. So my guess is because he he was aware of and involved in that project that um, there probably weren't copyright issues. But I I really don't know um, beyond that. It'd be interesting to. But I'm to- just curious about the breadth of his readership at that mm-hmm. time and and what Chesterton would have known about that and why he bemoaned it. George actually published uh, with Leipzig. 
usually at the same time as his English publishers, which provides some copyright protection. Okay. In Germany. Yes. Oh, cool. Okay. Very cool info. And then the other, the other part of it is it seems today that people who are interested in, in seeking his works out feel alone in some ways and don't understand why more people won't read him now or are not familiar with him now. But I mm-hmm. wonder how broad you think his readership is now. Mm-hmm. Well, you've asked me a whole bunch of really good questions there. Um, I think I think I'll land more largely on the last part of that, but um, in resp- just in brief to the first part, his readership during his lifetime, it, I th- it seems like it really went in ebbs and flows, um, that there were times when his works were very popular, more popular, sometimes when things became slightly less popular. And there are people who've done work on the publishing patterns and I'm not going to be able to pull the memory of those in out of my head, but there were, I mean, as I talk about the thousands who literally thousands who attended his lectures, both here in North America, as well as the UK, he did have quite a significant readership. And also when you start to look at that point, you know, during his lifetime, who is reading McDonald Um, of, of the, the you know, famous names that we know. I think, I think that is significant. Is a significant indicator of of his readership, but also um, maybe the 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 quality of its writing. It's not quite what I want to say. I mean, Twain. People talk about Twain as writing McDonald asking to have Back of the North Wind replaced because his kids have read it so often that it's gone to tatters and he needs a new copy. Twain also read McDonald on his honeymoon. Um, Robert Falconer is what he read on his honeymoon. So he he's he's obviously a pretty big writer. If somebody like Twain um, is picking up Robert Faulkner to read with his wife on on his honeymoon, I think what's interesting to me thinking about people like Mary Mapes Dodd, Dodd who wrote um, Silver Skates, Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates, or or Twain or Emerson, these uh, these various people are reading him, um, that that sort of readership continues. And I think that's one thing that really struck me as I, as I started to look at readership of McDonald today, is that after McDonald's death, the people who keep really reading him and talk about his impact on them are writers, are storytellers. Francis Hodgson Burnett, um, the writer of The Secret Garden, or... Um, James Berry, the writer of Peter Pan, W.B. Yeats, Auden, Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale wrote out pages of his novels to take with her to the Crimea. Um, Oswald Chambers wrote pages out to reread, which is why some some bits of McDonald ended up in my utmost for its highest, right. accidentally thought to be cham- um, Chal- Chambers, um, but were actually McDonald. Um, he... You, and you, we see we see McDonald show up again and again in references by writers. Madeline Longle, you know, said in a class I attended that she was teaching that the first person she hopes to see after the Trinity when she gets to heaven is George McDonald. Um, <laughs> Frederick Beekner, 
I had someone else just, oh, Maurice Sendak, you know, where the wild things are, would not be where the wild things are if it were not for George MacDonald. Um, and I think that really struck me when I was beginning my work on him is that the people who did keep on talking about MacDonald during the quieter 20th century are all our famous storytellers, all our famous story writers, people that we all know the names of. And it was like the storytellers could still see um, what an amazing storyteller he was, even when his readership went relatively quiet and his publications stopped being published as much. But Chesterton does say that he thinks the time the time for MacDonald was yet to come. And I think Chesterton was being prophetic there because when I started working on my PhD 25 whatever years ago, I could name on definitely two hands, if not uh, if not only one hand, all the people I knew globally who were doing graduate work on George MacDonald oh, um, okay. in Germany, in Canada, in Scotland, in the US. And now there's so many people writing on MacDonald um, and working on MacDonald. And there's so the interest in him is just kind of booming crazily right now. So when I was, yeah, 20 years ago, I was used to people saying, George MacDonald, is he, is he the guy Lewis talked about? Um, and now <laughs> I think you've even seen that on like the George McDonald Facebook page, right? The numbers of people who track that are crazy. Um, and people seem to be increasingly interested in all genres of his literature. Um, and there's there's some amazing young scholars out there right now doing all sorts of really interesting work. And then, you know, David Jack has beautifully done the paraphrasing of the Scottish novels, you know, as I'm sure you guys get this frustration and angst when people say, oh, I can't read the real, the novels in the original because, because they're all written in Scottish and I can't understand it. And, you know, our first place I start is like, that's only, only a small number of the Scottish novels actually have the dialect in them. It's, most of the novels don't even have the dialect. So you can read them. I know, like, if you can read Dickens, McDonald's even easier. You can read McDonald. Mm -hmm. um, but for the ones that do have that dialect in them, David Jack's side by side parallel text is a beautiful edition that we've been waiting for for decades for McDonald's work. Um, Jess Leader Lederman's publication of Lilith with the first illustrated Lilith. <laughs> just kind of crazy but beautiful illustrations by an Italian fantasy sci-fi illustrator and the rabbit rooms edition of the golden key uh, for which I had the privilege to write the intro but this amazing graphic novel done by Stephen Hesselman is a stunning piece of work and they're really careful and call it I can't remember if the words adapted adaptation the only things of McDonald's own specific words do, do not show up in the, this graphic novel are like he said, she said, because that's obvious from, from the bubbles above people's heads. You don't need to say he's, otherwise the entire text is there. I've gone through both of them side by side. The entire text is there. And Hesselman spent seven years paying attention to the text and crafting pictures in response. Such a careful reader. And I have had the joy the last year of watching seven-year-olds be completely absorbed in the story, 12-year-olds being completely absorbed, 20-somethings 
senior citizens and he's uh, there's this whole new readership going okay where's more where's more who would have never read the text tight text on the page amazing story as the golden key is but has something that's opened up to a whole new whole new readership and i just see this happening everywhere um sounds like i, I need to get Chesterton that for my right. grandkids <laughs> oh it's it's you know i highly recommend it it's a beautiful piece of work Stephen yeah. really has done a stunning job and i hope i hope we don't have to wait seven years till we get another one um, i know people who are writing radio plays right now um on the princess and the goblin um people doing i know some people working on some full feature film screens mcdonald is everywhere these days which is exciting for graphic novels, they came out a couple years ago with uh, The Light Princess, um, and currently there's a Kickstarter, and they're working on Fantasties as a graphic novel as well, which I can't wait for. People wouldn't be doing if they didn't think there was an audience, right? When you Do you teach classes now somewhere? I'm in what's called an independent scholar, so I'm not at any particular school. So I, te I guess teach online okay, um, or okay. in person. But I, I go places and just will go in. I have health limitations for so yeah. teaching a full semester wouldn't be possible for me, but I love going in and doing short term work yeah. with students of all That's, ages. Sounds great. One of the things that I would be interested in is how you explain to people uh, how to read his stuff. Mm. I think people are often put out by lengthy sentences and which I love personally. I love that kind of stuff myself. Uh, and, and also one of the things that goes with that a little bit, I, I was thinking about this the other day it, with the discussion that Donald had with Mrs. Brooks about Epi and, mm. and Lord Fortescue and how they were trying to stop her from this activity with this guy, something that today is like, around every corner that you go to and the Victorian morals that were there uh, and that sort of thing and how that would carry through how you would try to take somebody. And it, it, it seems difficult at times to go back without imposing the present on what already happened and being rudely judgmental about the past because we're in the state and time. I've actually you... been yeah, I've it's, it's a really good question, um, Dale. And I've been really struck the last few years by some of I have a lot of young adults that help me out here at the farm or come through. And occasionally when we're weeding in the vegetable garden or doing some other chore, we'll listen to an audiobook. And I remember quite clearly the first time a 20-year-old guy said to me while we were listening to The Lost Princess or The Wise Woman, um, he said, this is so contemporary. Every parent should read this story. And I was so taken aback because I'm used to thinking of McDonald as a Victorian scholar and old-fashioned. And I was I was not prepared for how gripped this 20-year-old guy would be by this story. And so I think there's there's a, you know, in short, I think there's sort of three answers that pop into my mind in response to you. Um, and maybe hopping back to Stephen Hesselman, one thing is 
to um, exploring other mediums. Uh, we are a visually, we, we've become a visually dependent culture. So people aren't good at coming up and entering stories on their own without assistance. And I think Hesselman's graphic novel, which is so respectful of the author, he puts himself under McDonald. He doesn't try to say this is what McDonald's saying. Like he just says what McDonald's saying and gives gives images to it. Um, and I think movies and theater explorations of that is one way to pull people in. Um, but also even back to the original text, one of the things that I do remind people when they're starting with Fantastic, you know, when I'm when I'm teaching on Fantasties, is Fantasties was written before even the penny novel existed. Magazine journals stories weren't even really happening that much yet. Hmm. So when Fantasties was written, it was written with the expectation that every author had before that era. And that is that, of course, a book isn't read just once. Who reads a book once? I mean, who can afford financially to read a book once? There you go. Yeah, um, because yeah. people don't even have many books. People share books. People read aloud to each other often. People travel with their books. But no one is ever reading with the expectation that they'll get the story on the first read. Like that, that concept doesn't even exist um, when Fantasties is written. And that's the sort of writer that McDonald continues to be. And I think we see that sort of writer as well in, in the later Acolyte Lewis. You know, Lewis is writing, like, Lewis is pretty good at writing a story that you find intriguing on the first read, but there's so many layers and levels, right? And that's, he learns that from McDonald and from the other people that he's reading. But McDonald is still of that ilk that he never ever expects a writer or reader to get everything in Fantasties, let alone another story on the first read. And I love Lewis's quotation that you read a story the first time to, I'm not going to be verbatim here, but you read a story first time to get the plot and the characters. You read a story the second time for wisdom. Um, and Lewis himself reread Fantasties innumerable times. He reread most of MacDonald. Again and again and again throughout his life, you know, Lewis starts in his teens with Fantasties and he's still still reading it months before his death and telling others to read it. He does not read it once. He reads it again and again and again. And so that that's, I think, so multiple for us today, maybe we need to explore multiple mediums. We need to remember that these stories are not meant to be gotten the first get go. They're so much richer than that. They're so much deeper than that. They are like scripture in that way. They're not as rich as scripture, but they're informed by scripture and how scripture is written that way. And the third thing that I find really helpful for the people that I teach today and my friends is, is again, something that most writers, when McDonald's a young kid, are expecting to happen still, read in community. Um, and that's something that we've also really lost in the 21st century and the last part of the 20th century is reading and community. Um, and whether that's out loud or just discussing um, discussing the story, at best both. Um, and a, a story is something that comes out of relationship. Right? The author is writing this thing that has formed because of all the other different people and writers and creation that he's engaged with. And so it is an act of relationality, but it's an act of relationship that is done in order to relate to others, mm. but to others, plural, not just to one person. 
And yeah, that's good. The reception of a story should be the same. I think we we are better readers. We are better receptors of story when we do so in community, um, when we talk about things together. And like even reading McDonald out loud or any book out loud, you hear it differently than you hear it. And I, I experience that all the time when I'm reading The Golden Key out loud to a group of people. I notice things I never lo- noticed when I was reading yeah. it silently. Yeah. But then... The people around, I remember so clearly with a bunch of teenagers in my neighborhood, they'd asked me to, can we do a book group on the princess and the goblin? Like, oh, like twist my rubber arm, guys. Yes, please. <laughs> and at one point in the story, and I can't even remember what it was that was yellow, but one of the girls said, well, you know, that's because that was yellow in the story. I'm like, yellow? She she read the story once and that stuck out to her, this color that was significant for some reason. And I've studied and taught and written on this story at that point in time, like for 30 some years, and I'd never picked up on that point. And then it opens up something completely new. And that's what community does, right? That's what reading in community, that's what living in community does. Back to to Dante. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that you're saying that brought to mind uh, something that there was a group of men in this case having a discussion about unspoken sermons that I mm-hmm. heard on the on the uh, Facebook page. And one of the guys said that the key to him, the key to understanding them was the fact that it was all about relationship, that the unspoken sermons were all about relationship. Mm-hmm. I think that's what his novels are all about. People working because- their stuff mm-hmm. out and trying to see how do you how do you respond to this thing when this mm-hmm. happens and from the, all these different angles and some of the characters that he gets in there, like Polworth are <laughs> just magnificent. Mm-hmm. If I can be a cheeky theologian, um, it's because it's all about love. The Trinity is love is pure. That's relationship. Yeah. And I joke with the, with, people all the time these days that I swear the answer to every conundrum in my life or that people come to me with these days, I think the answer to any conundrum is relationship because love is relationship. So the answer is love. The answer is relationship. Um, And I really, I do think that is a significant drive for McDonald. And that's back to why he wrote how he wrote and for my own trying to understand how does he become a mythopoeic writer because he comes to understand that relationship is central. And the theologians that most shaped his life, A.J. Scott and Thomas Erskine and Chalmers, these guys, they're relational theologians. The Trinitarian theologians are constantly talking about this, that relationship is key. And and you see you see their specific ideas on that play out in fairy tales. Even the light princess, what does she have to do at the end? She has to learn the gift of gravity. She has to care what other. She has to relate with others. It's only when she starts to care about others that she starts to be healed. That she starts to get gravity. She has to learn to be in relationship and not be her own independent being. And that's what Adela Cathcart, you know, the whole, that whole novel is we're being taught the importance of relationship through every story different. And each of those stories is a different genre 
which is McDonald actually hearkening back to Sydney's Philip Sidney, his great his great literary hero, Philip Sidney's defense right. of poetry, and that story is not like can come in many different mediums and many different forms. Right. Um, but story is relationship embodied. That's that's the gospel, right? You know, it is. Yeah, it's a uh, story. A true story, and that's what Lewis and Tolkien would hasten to say. It's a truest story, but it is a story. And if we miss out on that, and it's a story shaped by stories, right? And what does Christ do constantly? He tells stories. And why do we get the story of Christ? How do we understand the story of Christ better? We go back and get to better know the stories that came before his story. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, this story is so many layers, a story upon story upon story. Yeah. Was it? Which one was it? Was it Tolkien that some one time answered somebody when they said something about trying to find something in his story and his answer to them was, I, I told it for the tale. Was that Tolkien or Lewis when somebody was trying to discover and oh. break things apart and find all these specifics and bring in all these theolo- theologies and things? They said, well, I told it for the tale. I always yeah. liked that line. <laughs> that 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 would be that would be Tolkien who Lewis you know called a bit of a bandersnatch because Tolkien and when you read Tolkien's letters you see he's constantly contradicting himself and he'll say there's no meaning in the story and then he'll say oh like Galadriel's actually Mary and he's like no Galadriel's not Mary and like he's constantly um you know contradicting himself there but I mean Tolkien himself is the one who he brings Lewis to a place of faith by saying stories are everything you know that 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 is that conversation that actually brings lewis to the threshold of accepting the christian god is tolkien saying That's spectacular. stories have power stories are real uh, that also echoes uh, a lady who wrote to george asking him to explain fantasies um and he essentially said take what you can get from it it's not my job to give it to you because it's an active relationship right yeah you're supposed to enter into a relationship with that story and that dan reminds me uh, a quotation that you know well and i'm not going to be able again without taking a few minutes to find it i won't find quotes perfectly but when mcdonald talks about how every story every true story because it's engaging with the stories that come before, will always have more in it than even the author knows. And actually only God know, can ever know everything that's within a story. Like even the author will be surprised with what's in the story because the story is engaging with a person too. And so what I discover in Fantasties, my, I may have a complete life revelation because I'm bringing me into the story that will be different from you bringing you into that exact same story, which is um, concepts of literary criticism that he actually learned from F.D. Morris and A.J. Scott, um, who also specifically talk about this when they're talking about literature and why we need to have literature as a discipline to help people learn learn these things through story and recognize how story teaches us these things and teaches us to think. I think um, the yeah. George writing uh, helps that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a wide variety of friends and acquaintances. Uh, some are believers, some are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of them that I've suggested read George, find something accessible. Yeah. So I have a friend who is, well, was pagan 
um, who I gave Lilith to and adored it um, and was like, why have I never heard of this guy? Yeah. Because of the breadth of what he wrote and the themes run throughout. So you can read the poetry and find the same themes in the novels and find the same themes in the sermons or the fairy tales. But I love that, that how malleable the storytelling that he did was where he was like, whatever the form, these things are still true. And these are the threads that run throughout. Um, and that makes it so accessible. So it can be a graphic novel or a play or uh, a Tori Amos album or. Uh, yes. Yeah. A ballet. Yeah. 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 Um, his, his um, AJ Scott, when he's writing about literature and giving lectures on literature, Scott talks about finding the confluences in stories that have gone before. And he says where where you find things that resonate in multiple old stories, those confluences are places of truth, of light. And we need to focus on those confluences and pull and essentially saying, you know, pull those into our storytelling, which is what McDonald does. That's part of what shapes his stories into what they are. And so he's finding these confluences of truth and goodness and light and very intentionally using them to shape you know he he relates with them and brings his own person to them and then out of that crafts new stories and i think i think this is when lewis talks about um mythopoeia being the greatest of arts and mcdonald being the greatest practitioner thereof um mcdonald's very intentional drawing of the goodness of other stories and seeking to create more goodness out of that. Your, your comment about Lilith reminds me of one of my early students reading Fantasties. And he was really kind of reticent at first because he had so much, so many bad experiences with Christianity and just didn't want to have anything. As soon as he heard that Lewis liked McDonald, he didn't want to read Fantasties. And the essay he wrote for me afterwards, the key thing I remember from it is he said, I wanted to be good after I read this story. It wasn't that he had had a faith conversion. No, but the story called him to goodness. About that. Um, and I think that's, that resonates with a lot of us. In uh, the, the novel, Paul Faber, MacDonald, in the last few paragraphs, trying to bring this story of Paul Faber to a conclusion, he says, why should I pursue the story further? If not here, where better should I stop? The true story has no end, no end, but endlessly dreary would the story be were there no life living by its own will, no perfect will, one with an almighty heart, no love in whom we live and move and have our being. Offer me an eternity in all things else after my own imagination, but without a perfect father, and I say no. That, you know, that. when you're talking about uh, the stories coming from other things, it brought to mind a quote in a T.S. Eliot book. It says something about all English writers are drawing on what has become before in order to continue beyond. And if they, they can't begin something new that isn't drawn from the past, it's a great quote. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think... Sometimes I don't get frustrated. I think I get sad when 
Um, I see people either who say McDonald or Chesterton or Coleridge, whoever got that idea, you know, stole stole that idea from somebody else. It isn't it's not original thought. Or if they say they want to defend, oh, but McDonald was a completely original, or Lewis was completely original, um, because they're missing the most important thing about story and that is that story draws on story and I think that's that's what Elliot's alluding to there is I think it's so so key to understanding story from any culture not just the English culture any culture that story comes from story nothing happens in isolation and I think part of the region McDonald's stories are as rich as they are is he really threw himself intentionally into that. Let me be in relationship with the storytellers that have come before me and learn all that I can. And let me step into that dialogue, into that conversation. And let me invite my readers into that conversation. Let me introduce my readers to Herbert. Herbert's so cool. Let me introduce my readers to Cooper. Cooper's amazing. Um, So he's, and and into their ideas, but he's constantly he he never wants he wants his readers to like to be aware like I'm not writing anything that's completely original, folks. This is a conversation, and that's what that's what scripture is. That's what all good story is: is conversation with those the stories that have come before. And to think otherwise is either to read shallowly or just to be ignorant of of the reality but i think one of the places in which he he expresses this most succinctly and beautifully and is in england's antiphon where he talks about how that is what story is is antiphony and he calls himself um in he calls himself as the the person pulling together the poems in england's antiphon in that collection the master of the hearing because he's wanting to help us hear how that is what all these poems are, is antiphonal music, each poem responding and resounding to that which has come before and only being able to be what it is because of the voices. And, you know, he says something like, but um, the heart plays its piece and the, the trumpet vibrates back alike and yet so different. And that is what story is, is this constant conversation, this interweaving, being shaped and formed and bringing new things into the conversation, but into the conversation. And I think what Mark McDonald is constantly arguing throughout his opus is that specifically that, I mean, that's what humans are called to do. Specifically, he would say that's what Christians are called to do is to participate in the story, (laughs) to be storytellers to be story stewards, to remember the stories, to keep on telling the stories and to carry that on. And if we can even be story crafters, but he kind of says, we don't have, we don't have an option. We have to be story stewards um, and storytellers. That's part of our role. But the more intentional we are about that, the, the better, the better we will be at doing it. Um, But also the healthier we will be, the more whole we will be. Um, and the less at war we will be if we are listening to each other's stories and telling the stories well and truly, which which is then back to 
listening to the stories that have come before. Um, learning from the stories that have come before will protect us from becoming isolated from one another, which is indeed descending into hell. And we're story okay. doers as well. We build our concepts of who we are and who we want to be from the, the things we take in. Um, which is so why community is so important, right? Because we can so easily craft our own stories and make up. We can tell us ourselves stories about who we are. I mean, st stories have power. McDonald's constantly showing how stories have power. It doesn't mean there aren't bad stories or stories wrongly told or false stories. Um, and I think we often, that's how we deal with some of the awkwardnesses or difficulties in our lives is where it's so easy to retell and reframe story. But if we're in community, if we're engaging with others, community helps us to be hold true to the stories and to go back and find the resonances. What are the true points in the story? Um, and that's part of the important part of the community, I think. Would you share a favorite yeah. quote with us? Well, why don't I, I pull up the antiphon quote quotation. Great. I would rather assume the office of master of the hearing for my aim shall be to cause the song to be truly heard to set forth worthy points in form, in matter, in relation, to say with regard to the singer himself, his time, its modes, its beliefs, such things as may help to set the song in its true light, its relation namely to the source whence it sprung, which alone can secure its right reception to the heart of the hearer. This is MacDonald talking about his introduction of his readers to other writers. Then he goes and he talks about how he is hoping to build, he says, if I may, like a chapel, gathering together the sounds of its never-ceasing choir, heart after heart lifting up itself in the music of speech, heart after heart responding across the ages, all these writers writing across the ages, hearing we the readers worship with them. For we must not forget that although the individual song springs from the heart of the individual, the song of a country, the song of readers, is not merely cumulative, it is vital in its growth, and therefore composed of historically dependent members. No person could sing as he or she has sung, had others not sung before them. Deep answereth under deep, face to face, praise to praise. To the sound of the trumpet, the harp returns its own vibrating response alike, but how different. The religious song of the country, as he's speaking specifically of the poems he has here, I say again, is a growth rooted deep in all its story. And I love how MacDonald is telling us, but also reminding us, perhaps is a better word, but also inviting us that when we read the stories that have been written in ages before and read the poems and the songs that have been written in ages before, we have the possibility, should we choose, to participate with those stories, to delight with them, even as he says here, to worship with them. Um, for MacDonald, time, death, death is not a, not a relational barrier. Um, and we, he believes that we can, we can not just worship with Herbert and Dunn and Dante and Shakespeare and Chaucer, but we can delight with them. We can learn from them 
And someday, McDonald believes, um, and he writes this in multiple places, we may even have a chance to discuss their poems with them, to delight in their poems with them, to hear their response back to our thoughts upon their poems. And that shapes how and what MacDonald writes as well, his expectation that we will all be in the dance and the story together responding antiphonally back and forth with each other in person someday. We want to thank everyone for joining us for this installment of Making Friends with George MacDonald. Please join us next time where we'll discuss all things GM. Talk to you then. Bye.